It's Christmas season. Uh, it's, it's getting that time of year. We're so excited uh, around our house. We got to put up the tree last night. Finally, at the Hale House, we only broke one ornament, which is like a record for us. That was nothing. We were, I mean, we got off easy. That was, it was great. And we have a new puppy now uh, in our house, which is kind of like having a toddler. So all of our ornaments start two feet off the ground. Have you ever, you have the dog or the cat or, you know, that likes to bat things. So he's just thrilled. This is his first Christmas and he just doesn't understand why there's a tree we brought into the house. He's like, you know, is, is this for me? Is this my new bathroom? What do you, what do you have a tree in the house for? So that's exciting. That's fun. Um, I love it. I love it. It's my favorite, favorite time of year. And uh, it's Advent. Today, it, it, we're, we're officially in the season of Advent. And, uh, you know, if you're like me, if you're, maybe you didn't grow up, or maybe you didn't grow up, you know, religiously at all, or maybe you grew up kind of in a branch of the Christian tree that didn't really have much to do with Advent. Advent's just this season uh, that comes here in the, se- in the days leading up to Christmas, it's a season of anticipation, right? Uh, of looking forward to something. And the thing that we are looking forward to is contained in the word Advent itself. Because Advent means a coming, the coming or the arrival. So it's that season of anticipation for the coming or the arrival. 2,000 years ago, our fellow human beings in the ancient world were longing for the arrival of a Messiah. All of creation was, was holding its breath for, the, for, for a savior. And so for Christians everywhere, for over these past centuries, since that time, um, this has been a time of year where we kind of join with those of old in that time, in that sense of anticipation of waiting um, for the coming of Christ, even as we are waiting for the second coming of Christ, right? So there's kind of like this double layer of things going on during Advent. It makes it really, really cool. The book of uh, Romans in chapter 8 puts it like this. It says that all creation today is groaning in anticipation for the arrival of Christ, for the return of Christ. Just like it says groaning like a mother giving birth. I've never experienced that, but I'm told it's not the funnest experience to go through. But, but the thing that is coming makes it all worth it, right? Makes it, it's easy for me to say, because I'm just sitting there going, way to go, baby, you can do it. But, but, but it's that groaning, that arrival. We know, we know it's going to be worth it. We know there is a Savior coming, amen? And so folks in that first century, they were uh, waiting for that first Christmas birth to happen, and as we are celebrating that birth, that we're getting ready to celebrate that Christmas, we are also practicing the fine art of waiting, waiting for his return. And so, times like this, Advent is a fantastic opportunity for those of us in the church to go back and look at some of the prophetic words in the Old Testament, the words that were foretelling the coming of that Savior, that Messiah. And one of the most famous prophecies uh, from old that pointed to Jesus is found in the book of Isaiah, the book of Isaiah. Uh, And to me, Isaiah is, he is the ultimate prophet, all right? Isaiah is like the OG. On my top 10 list of super superhero prophets, he is right up there. Um, he's the granddaddy. Isaiah foretells this Messiah, Jesus, 700 years before Jesus actually comes. It's 700 years before it. But Isaiah identifies him by four names, and we're going to spend the next four weeks 
unpacking these names, not just because it's kind of cool and something interesting to do, but because these four names, these titles speak volumes of who Jesus is, and they really will, I believe, will be a blessing and help you and me right now, what that means, what, the, what these names mean to you and me right now as we try to make sense of this world that we live in, okay? And so, if you have your Bibles or your scripture app or whatever it is, you can turn over to uh, Isaiah. We're going to be there in just a minute in Isaiah chapter 9. But first of all, before we jump into the scripture itself, I want to give us a little historical context. I like us to understand, I always like us to understand, like, what is happening? These are real people. These aren't just like fancy holy scriptures that came out of the cloud and landed one day. These are real people who wrote this down. So let's get some historical background of what is happening in Isaiah, with Isaiah here. As I said, it's about 700 BC. 700 BC, this is 700 years before Jesus. The Israel that we think of, you know, when we think of Israel today, or we think of like Israel that King David ruled over, that Israel does not exist. It had long since, in the time of Isaiah, had long since divided into two different nations. There was a northern kingdom, and there was a southern kingdom. Now, this was a really strange occurrence, and it was kind of tragic. It's heartbreaking, but, but this is what happened. Because both of these kingdoms are now separate kingdoms. They're both Jewish. They both serve Yahweh. But there had been this political schism that had taken place in Israel, whereby one half of the people of the land wanted one king, and the other half of the people in the land wanted this other king. We're going to really have to use our imagination to understand what that would be like, okay, today. I understand. We can't imagine that. It's so unthinkable. So imagine about, so about 200 years this happened before Isaiah. It's kind of like, you know, we would, we, you know, we know about the Civil War if you took history in America, um, except this took, this stuck, not just a couple years, that it had been going on for 200 years. The kingdom has split in two. And what makes this so tragic is you go back and you look at what happened and what the results were. The, this unified nation of Israel, the 12 tribes, the Hebrew tribes, this unified nation that God intended Israel to be. Remember, he intended them to be the light to the world. They had a mission. You're going to like show the world what I am like. You're going to be a blessing to the world. This mission got undone, not over doctrine, not even over religion, over politics, over politics. Which human should be in power? I wish this were relevant to us today. I know it's good. But, and here's what's really interesting. If you go back and you look at the history, what happened here, everybody got the king they wanted. In this case, they said, we want this king, we want this king, and they got it. They got the king they wanted, and they ended up losing their nation in the process. They ended up losing. Worse yet, Israel traded their, their birthright, their mission, their holy calling that God had called them to, to. They traded it for this like political bowl of porridge. So, 700 BC. Jerusalem, you can see it up there. Jerusalem is now the capital of only the southern kingdom of Judah. It used to be the capital of the whole country. Now it's the capital of Judah. The breakaway northern kingdom, which confusingly still calls itself Israel, but it's the northern kingdom now. It'd be like if David Lee Roth left the band and then started a band and called it Van Halen. It just doesn't make any sense, but that's what happened here for the teens of the 80s like me. Um, 
So what happens is Israel is up here. They're, they're, each of them are half as strong as they used to be because everything's divided. And Israel, the northern kingdom, comes under attack from one of the most, probably the most barbaric empire the world has ever seen, probably until the Nazis. These guys were terrible. That is the Assyrian Empire. The Assyrians attack the north. The Assyrians aren't just feared, they're hated among all empires. And the northern kingdom of Israel, which actually, I mean, it comprises 10 of the original 12 tribes, the 12 sons of Jacob. 10 of them are part of this northern kingdom. They find themselves helpless to stop the Assyrians from coming in, brutally conquering them, slaughtering the people, destroying the cities, and taking the survivors captive, exiled back to Assyria. The entire kingdom is destroyed, and they are never heard from again. Period. That's their story. There's no happy ending. There's no, like, someday they made their way back to... No, they're done. Their identity disappears. Historians believe that those who survived the actual slaughter and were taken back just assimilated into the rest of mankind. For some reason, their identity doesn't make it. Their, their religion, who they are, disappears. We never hear from them again. Meanwhile, well, well what, that, what that means, by the way, is that every Jewish person today and even up to the time, 1949, when the Jews came back and formed the country of Israel that we know of today, all Jews around the world trace their lineage to the southern kingdom. That's the only surviving people, which is why they're referred to as Jewish, because it comes from the word Judah. All right, a little interesting aside there. So meanwhile, so imagine this is happening, this horrific event. Imagine you're in Judah. This horrific thing is happening in the north. And, and their southern cousins down here in Judah see this taking place. As you can imagine, they're terrified. Judah is, is small. It's con continually under threat. It has very little defense. About all it has going for it is Jerusalem itself. And believe me, lots of the surrounding superpowers, Egypt and Babylon and all these guys, they all have their eye on this small but prized piece of land. So in Judah, these are dark and miserable times. No one's at peace. Everything's unsettled. They've seen their northern cousins taken away, terrible things done to them. And the people of Judah are just sure this is about to happen to them. On top of that, the kings of Judah, if you look through the book of Chronicles, the kings of Judah, the southern kingdom, they are one disappointment after the other. I mean, they are wicked, they're evil, they're inept, uh, they worship idols, they make stupid military decisions, and the economy's a disaster. I mean, this is awful, awful stuff. So in this era of national disaster looming around the corner, doom and gloom everywhere, into this mess steps Isaiah, probably the greatest prophet Judah ever produces. Isaiah. So for me, I, this is a real eye-opener. This kind of, it kind of gives me fresh eyes on the entire book of Isaiah. When you read Isaiah and you realize this is the air, the atmosphere that Isaiah is writing with, this, this threat of destruction. And in this time of incredible pessimism, he utters this incredible, mind-boggling prophecy. It's a promise of hope in the form of a Messiah but one, as I said, would be born far into the future. 
So we're going to read some of these verses that he said. We're going to unpack them just for a little bit. And then in the remaining few minutes that we have, we're going to uh, discover the first of these four names that we're going to take a look at for the rest of the month. All right, so here we go. We're in Isaiah chapter 9. Here we go. There we are. There we go. Let's see. We had that scripture, but we didn't need to read that. That's all right. Here we go. We're going to look at Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6. For unto us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders. Notice, first of all, the, the present tense language. To us a child is born, a son is given. We'll come back to that. And then the government will be on his shoulders. This word government is this Hebrew word misra, and it literally means authority or rule, not so much just, just the uh, you know, mechanical uh, government that we think of, like the, the way it works, but this idea. So in other words, all of authority will be in, the, in this man's hands to rule justly and righteously. And to have this authority on his shoulders means to bear the full weight of it the full burden of this rule. This is not a burden that is meant for any normal human being to bear, right? In fact, it's impossible for a human being to bear this kind of weight. Why? Because as any student of history can tell you, power corrupts. Am I right? Power corrupts. And no earthly leader has the wisdom or the foresight or the purity of heart to govern perfectly, to, to govern uh, righteously. Only a figure who might appear on this planet as one of us, but at the same time be not of this planet could possibly fulfill this. And so Isaiah declares, after this, he goes on to declare these four names or titles which turn out to say, I think, a lot more than even Isaiah had himself realized. And he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Beautiful, beautiful names here. And we today look at and we say, oh, beautiful, a beautiful point sign pointing to Jesus. Now, these four descriptions of the Messiah, we're going to see, would not only bring hope to the people of Judah when, I, when Isaiah uh, declares this prophecy. But it would also kind of surprise them, I think, to learn that they, if they turned out to be literally true. And the reason is because in the time of Isaiah, a lot of people were looking for a Messiah. They were expecting a Messiah. But the Messiah figure they longed for, they believed it would be someone that God sent to them for sure, but they never imagined for a second that that person would themselves be God. That's not what they thought of as a Messiah. I mean, that would be, to, to a Jewish person, that would be heresy, a sacrilege, right? Uh, Moses, for instance, is, was considered to be the first Messiah to the Jewish people, right? And he was just a man. He wasn't God himself, but he was sent from God. So the Messiah was expected to be a human being. And because Jewish people, they understand that God is God, people are people, and one can't ever be the other. This is why, you know, Jew, Jesus, when he comes on the scene, he makes the religious people so angry, that's why he gets them so mad, not because he claims to be a Messiah. Lots of people came along claiming to be a Messiah. It was because he equated himself with God. That will get you crucified. Amen. Let's keep reading. In verse 7, it says this. Of the greatness of his government and peace, 
there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing it and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. All right, there's so much we could unpack here. It would be awesome if we had the time, but I want to stay focused on a, on a couple of points here this morning. Question number one, when, we read, when I read this, question number one is, who is Isaiah referring to? More accurately, who does Isaiah think he's referring to? This is actually an interesting question. Today, you and I can, with the benefit of hide and sight, we can look back and go, obviously, this is Jesus, right? He's referring to Jesus. He's prophesying of the coming of the Christ. But biblical scholars, when they read these scriptures, they, they ask the question, who would the original audience have, have understood? And because think about it, they didn't know about Jesus. They didn't know Jesus was going to be 700 years in the future. So Isaiah is giving this prophecy in a time of incredible turmoil. Right now, we're under threat. Here comes these big bad empires. He gives this prophecy, and it turns out many scholars believe that when Isaiah wrote this, he himself may have thought that he was referring to Hezekiah. Now, here's what's going on here. That Hezekiah is a king uh, who had just been born at this time. And he turned out to actually be a pretty good king as far as kings went. Uh, he, he loved the Lord. He loved God from his beginning days to the end of his days. And Judah, at this point, had just lived through this awful king named Ahaz. Ahaz was awful. He was wicked. Uh, he, he was terrible. He was foolish. He was selfish. He was personally wicked in his personal life. And so this child that had just been born that would be the king, Isaiah, or this Hezekiah, Isaiah and the other people for sure would have looked at him as, oh, maybe this is our ray of hope. This guy will be, it's like a, it's a clean slate. He's young. He's good. Maybe he'll serve God. Maybe he'll be our Prince of Peace. He'll be our wonderful counselor. And so it's entirely possible and even likely when you think of Isaiah as a human being, as he was, to be prophesying about the future Messiah, Jesus Christ, as we now know he was, while at the same time thinking he's prophesying about the newest king, Hezekiah. Because here's what we have to keep in mind, and I, you know, I remember growing up forgetting this sometimes. If you're an Old Testament prophet and you give a prophecy, it doesn't make you God. It doesn't make you omniscient. You know all things now, right? And we see evidence in other places too. They themselves don't understand what they are prophesying about. They might be the words of God, but they don't even understand exactly the full meaning, the importance of what they're saying. And so it's entirely reasonable that Isaiah might have thought he was talking about Hezekiah, but as it turns out, this is not the case. Hezekiah, yeah, he was a decent king, but he didn't turn out to be the prince of peace. He wasn't the everlasting father, right? He was not the promised Messiah they were looking for. He didn't establish the throne of David forever and ever. I mean, in a hundred years from here, Judah itself would go into exile to the Babylonians. And Hezekiah himself, he was a good guy. You know, he, he did his very best, but he fought endless battles during his reign. He fought for power. He struggled for, to maintain control. He made alliances with pagan nations, just like every other earthly king did. And so this is a valuable lesson for us today. And that is that so often we can receive or we read about a promise of God. We can even receive a promise prophetically. 
we may assume or imagine a hundred different ways right now in the short term that this promise is coming to pass. God's going to do it this way. We, we like to put God in a little, our own little box. He's going to do it this way. Oh, he said this, so it must be this, right? We have to allow for God to be God. We have to allow the possibility that God is operating on a time frame we can't even imagine. His, his timeline is different than ours, isn't it? His concept of time is different. And when you think about it, the truth is, if Hezekiah had been the fulfillment of this prophecy, that would have been pretty anticlimactic, wouldn't it? We wouldn't be preaching about it 3,000 years later. Hezekiah, ooh, right? No, no, no. We still, we, we, we wouldn't be talking about it because as much as they were hoping Hezekiah would be the one to save Judah, God had in mind salvation on a much grander scale. Praise God for that, right? I mean, they were imagining he's going to come, he's going to save our little country, but God had in mind a savior, not of Judah, but of the world. That is what God was reserving the Messiah for, right? A king, not just of some political realm of, you know, in the Middle East, but the kingdom of heaven on earth itself, the kingdom of God that we talk about now today. So Isaiah is saying much more in this prophecy than even he realizes he's saying. And so what happens is, is centuries later when the early Christians, you know, Jesus has come and the church has begun. The early Christians are reading these scriptures. The early Christians are reading these old prophecies, which probably for hundreds of years, people just assumed was about Hezekiah. But these early, the early church takes a second look at Isaiah and they go, you know, this isn't about Hezekiah at all. This is about Jesus. This is about Jesus, right? And so they say, oh, of course. It can only be said of the Son of God that he is the wise, the the amazing counselor, that he is the mighty God, that he's the everlasting father, that he is the prince of peace. Of course, this is Jesus, right? And so we, we can see today that these words are pointing completely, pointing us towards Jesus. So here's one of the points I want us to see today. If you ever find yourself in times like Isaiah did, where things are pretty dark, things are uncertain, maybe you find yourself in a situation where forces feel like they're threatening us, maybe from without, from within, it looks like national disaster is coming, or there's division in the land. If you find yourself in a situation where it feels like all the leaders of the country are failing, maybe they're weak, or they're inept, or they're corrupt, no one... If you find yourself in a time where no one seems to be getting along, where the country is becoming frayed, maybe even where like trusted institutions are dying, if you ever find yourself in a situation like that, and again, really use your creativity and imagination to try to imagine what that would be like. What the early church understood was this. You don't put your hope in the next Hezekiah. Don't put your hope in the next Hezekiah, right? Hey, if this election turned out in a way and you're like really excited about the guy that's going to be inaugurated in January, that's great. But don't put your hope in the next Hezekiah. Or if you're really bummed out about whoever's going to be inaugurated in January, don't put your hope in the next Hezekiah. 
right? We can pray for good leadership. We're told in the Bible to do that. We can pray for good leadership for the next man or the woman or whoever it is in charge at any level of government, mayor, governor, congressman, president, whoever it is. We can pray that they'll be good and decent people. Maybe we'll pray that they're going to be wise and mature. We'll pray that they'll lead with integrity. We pray that they lead with decency. That'd be nice. Maybe they'll enact some good legislation. Wonderful. Wouldn't that be great? Maybe they'll be a voice for the voiceless. They'll stand up for injustice. Wouldn't that be awesome? Maybe they'll act like grown-ups. That would be amazing. Maybe. Praise God if that happens. But ultimately, ultimately, never forget, the best they can be, whoever it is, the best they can be is a band-aid on an open sore that is the kingdoms of this world. You understand what I'm saying? The, the early church understood this. I... I, I I love reading the, the letters of the apostles to the church because it shows, here's a church, they're living under the Roman Empire at that time, the early church. And you can imagine, maybe they thought, them, uh, you know, they thought maybe, hey, maybe someday we'll be lucky enough to live under a decent emperor, you know, who won't throw us to the lions for, you know, worshiping Jesus. That wouldn't be great. But no matter through all that hope, they never forgot that they were living under the thumb of the Roman Empire, Right? And they never mistook the kingdom that they lived in with the kingdom that they were loyal to. Okay. What am I saying? I'm saying don't put your hope in a Hezekiah. Don't put your hope in a Hezekiah. However wise or good he or she might seem. And don't fall into despair if you find yourself under the rule of a king Ahaz. You know, that oh, some things are looking really bad. Don't put your hope in a Hezekiah. Hope has a name and it's Jesus. Hope has a name and it's Jesus. Amen? Amen. If you want a peace, if you want a peace that's going to survive every storm, every storm that's still going to be coming, uh, if you want a peace that doesn't go up or down based on the fickleness of who's in office this year or next year or whatever it is, if you want a peace that's undisturbed no matter what happens, when it turns out our, our leaders disappoint us, if you want a peace that can survive even the rising and falling of empires, Well, don't look at the next Hezekiah. If you want that kind of everlasting peace, the peace that transcends all understanding, you anchor your heart and your mind in Christ Jesus, right? He's the leader who came and gave his life for us. He died for us. That's what love looks like. That's what real leadership looks like, right? That's what the Messiah looks like because he is the wonderful counselor. He is the mighty God, the Prince of Peace, the everlasting father. He's the only one that could, you could say all those things about. Am I right? He's the only one. He's the savior of the world. He's the living word of God. He's the perfect representation of the father. He's the alpha omega, the beginning and the end. He's Emmanuel, God with us. That is only Jesus. That can only be said of Jesus. So put your eggs in that basket and put all your eggs in that basket. It's the one you can trust. Amen. Isaiah said this over in a different place in, in chapter 26. He, this is as the Assyrians, remember, are right on the northern doorstep of the country. These are the same Assyrians, by the way, that invented, they invented impaling. No one had ever thought of that before. They came up with this. They would attack a city and ransack the place, take some of the people outside, impale them on poles outside the city, and leave them there for a few days just to to die, just to strike fear in the rest of everybody, because they thought that was a great idea. These same Assyrians are right there. And under this threat, Isaiah says, he will keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on him. So remember that. Keep your eyes fixed on Jesus. My friends, keep your eyes fixed on Jesus. Don't get caught up in the mayhem. Don't get caught up in the turmoil, the venom. Don't let yourself get caught up in that. Keep your eyes fixed on Jesus. 
And you know, it's not because we don't care about things, you know, or that things down here aren't, don't have some importance to them because because they do, and justice is real, right? And we, we're called to stand up for, for those who are oppressed and less fortunate. But we don't let the cares of this age rent space in our heart. Do you understand the difference between caring and letting it obsess you and just being absorbed by it? Don't let it ruin. Don't let it ruin your witness to the world. Because that would be forgetting why we're here. Don't let it ruin your witness to the world. You know, we can win a battle and lose the war. And, and I don't want to, I have to catch myself all the time. I don't want to ever be guilty of that. I don't want to forget why I'm here. When you can trust in nothing else today, when you can trust in, you can't trust in what your leaders say or what the experts say or what media says, when you can trust in nothing, when you can't even trust what your religious leaders or your pastor is saying, I'm telling you what, you can trust Jesus. I'm telling you that, you can trust Jesus. Why? Well, I'm glad you asked because that brings us to the first of our four names. So we're just going to spend a few minutes talking about this. Jesus is the wonderful counselor. Wonderful counselor. Okay. Now in the Hebrew, this is great. This phrase is literally, it's literally written the counsel of wonder. Or it, it can mean the, the counsel that brings wonder. So notice this isn't just wise counsel. Jesus doesn't just have good ideas. Um, he's not just like a really great therapist. Even though I'm a big believer in good therapy, that's great. Uh, but Jesus doesn't just bring wisdom. It goes beyond that. His counsel produces wonder. It's miraculous. It goes beyond what's common, the common wisdom, the common sense. It amazes those who hear it. That's what this word wonder means. But there's a hugely important point, really important that I want us to get today about this name, Wonderful Counselor. It's something you and I absolutely have to embrace. If this is going to mean anything to us, if it's going to be a blessing to us, if it's going to benefit us in any way, for the Wonderful Counselor to produce the blessing in your life and, and in the life of our, of our church community here, for it to actually be the good news that you and I are desperate for, you actually have to obey His Wonderful Counsel. You have to obey the counsel, right? See, you can go to the most brilliant therapist on the planet, you know, the one that everybody recommends, the one the mo all the money can hire. And if you don't actually listen to her, then you, you won't receive anything. It won't benefit you, right? If you want to get in shape and let's say you're able to hire the, the best health guru in America, the greatest guy, if you don't actually stick to their plan, they might come and like coach you in the house. If you don't stick to their plan, you're going to just remain out of shape and get sicker and sicker. Am I right? Maybe you want to be a success. What if the greatest billionaire investment guru, whoever that is, I don't know, Elon Musk or somebody, he comes to you and... And he says, you know, he, he hears about your thing and he says, I want to help you become wealthy beyond your wildest dreams. Right. That sounds like the Dos Equis guy. No, it's not really Elon Musk. I can't do Swedish, whatever he is. Um, well, let's say he comes. He's like, I'm going to spend a week with you. I'm going to teach you all the tricks, all the secrets and everything. Like that. And if you don't follow his investment advice, you'll die broke and in debt. Right? 
If you're a, if you're a parent like me, and the you know you could just fantasize that like the greatest baby whisperer, you know, child guru, nana, nanny to the stars says, I want to spend a day with you just in your home and observing, and I'm going to tell you how to make your children into these perfect creatures that like do what you say and do their homework and all get scholarships to Harvard and stuff like that. And you're like, man, we have our own way of doing things around here. You know what? Your kids are going to be the whiny, spoiled brats that yell at you and steal money from your wallet until the day they move out that they are now, right? That's your choice if you don't actually follow the advice. Jesus is not called the wonderful dictator. He's the wonderful counselor, right? Wonderful counselor. You can hear the best preaching from the greatest pastors across the world. The Messiah himself could appear to you and preach to you on Sunday morning. And if you just nod your head and leave, it won't have done you a smidgen of good, right? Because Jesus is love. And love is not controlling. Love is not controlling. But it is powerful and life-changing if acted on. And that's what Jesus gives us. Uh, God says this over in, in the Psalms. Psalms 32, he says, I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my loving eye on you. This is what the creator of the universe is telling us. He's not like, I'm going to grab your head and make you do stuff, but I will counsel you with my loving eye. We can trust this counsel. We can trust it because this, come, this is counsel that comes from pure love. That's counsel you will not get anywhere else in this society. Counsel that comes from pure love. It's not the kind of advice, you ever get advice from somebody and you're kind of like, I'm not really sure what strings are attached to this. Or you hear something on the news and you're like, I'm not really sure if I can trust the agenda here, right? There's always an agenda. How can I, I don't know if I could trust this. Maybe this is misinformation or something like that. Let me tell you what, you can trust the only one who has your absolute best interest at heart. Only Jesus can be our wonderful counselor, the counsel that produces wonder. Now, all that begs the question, this sounds great. Why wouldn't everybody take Jesus' counsel? Why doesn't everybody follow Jesus' counsel? Well, there's a reason why, and it's not just because we're creatures of habit or we're stuck in our ways or something like that. The reason is in that word wonder. Because Jesus' type of wonder-producing counsel, it doesn't always make people feel warm and fuzzy. Believe it or not, Jesus didn't always make people, he didn't, they didn't leave his presence when he walked the earth always feeling warm and fuzzy. Sometimes they were confused. Sometimes they were angry. They were disappointed. The wonder-producing wisdom of Jesus can have vastly different effects on people depending on the, the, who they are. It amazed some people. Some people it offended. There's a story over in Luke chapter 4. I like to read this. It gives me hope sometimes when I get your emails. Jesus is preaching in his hometown. He's preaching in his hometown, and it says that they were astounded at his teaching because he spoke with authority. Well, that sounds really great. But this word, astounded, this Greek word, ekplaso, ekplaso, it has two meanings. It can mean to amaze, as in like, whoa, that's fantastic, that's brilliant, how'd you do that? But the word also literally means to strike with panic, and it's the word used for something that is shocking and offensive. Same word. So sometimes we have to guess by the context, how, is, how does the writer 
meaning to use this word here. And I think, I submit to you, if you look at how the crowd actually responds to this astounding teaching, what do they do? His hometown crowd, they try to kill him. (laughs) Jesus comes and he teaches to his hometown and they try to kill him. Why? Because the wisdom of the kingdom is not the wisdom of the world, is it? It's not the wisdom of the world. It doesn't seek the same agenda as this world. The wisdom of Jesus, it's not obsessed with maintaining power. It's not obsessed with grasping at things that the world is after. It's not obsessed with riches and power and status and, and you know, uh, being right and personal freedom. It's not obsessed with victory over people we consider our enemies. The wisdom of the kingdom of God which is the kind of wisdom that the wonderful counselor desires to come alongside you and speak into your life on a daily basis. That wisdom will lead you to salvation and peace. It'll lead us to to joy and fulfillment that you cannot find in the world. But it's a wisdom that will shock some people and not in a good way. It's a wisdom that will often require you to die to yourself. It'll require you to die to your agenda. It's often humbling to our sense of pride. What this means for us, my friends, is if we want to be Jesus followers, and I use that term purposefully rather than Christian, because Christian can more and more just be meaningless. It can can be, it's a good thing, but it can be just this meaningless tag you place on anything. You know, music can be Christian or a movie or whatever. If you want to be a Jesus follower, you're going to have to follow Jesus. You have to follow his words and his ways, his wonderful counsel. We've got to trust that that counsel will deliver into our life something greater than anything we'll get from the common sense of the world. And that wisdom of his, it may seem offensive to our own personal assumptions and our own biases. I understand. And if you want to live, you know, really counterculturally, that's a term we used a lot, uh, countercultural was, you know, I remember being a teenager back long ago when like great, great lizards roamed the earth. Uh, being, we, we used the word countercultural a lot. That was a, that was a big deal. If you want to live counterculturally, it's not about just switching sides. It's not about joining the resistance or joining a militia or switching parties or joining a, a new website to rant on or something like that. That's not countercultural. You understand that is the epitome of the culture. It is the culture. If you're in a war and, and you run to the other side and switch sides, you haven't become an agent of peace. You've just put on a different uniform. You're still in the war. If you truly want to be a countercultural follower of Jesus, then if you want to follow his counsel, if you want to make a difference in this life for Christ, then we have to make the brave choice to say, enough, I'm going to drop the sword. I'm dropping the jawbone. I'm turning off the noise. I'm going to sit at the feet of the wonderful counselor. I'm going to listen to his words 
and I'm going to act on his ways. That's the new normal. That's being an ambassador for the kingdom of God rather than just a foot soldier in another battle in another kingdom of this world that will not last forever. Calm down, calm down. I know, stop, stop applauding. Um, I'll, let me end with this. The normal thing at Christmas time, when it comes time for Christmas, is, uh, is, is people celebrate, they celebrate them and their, their loved ones, right? That's, people in the world live in kind of, a, kind of a closed circle. That's normal. Family and friends. And that's who they care about. I mean, why should I care about all these other folks out there? I've got my family and my friends. And maybe once in a while, you know, somebody at Christmas time, you, you know, you see your, your friend on, on Twitter or something like that, and they'll, or, or they'll post a picture of them like going out and doing something really nice for others, and they post it on Instagram or something like that. But basically, the normal way of life at Christmas time is, is our lives are enclosed. And Jesus says it should not be so with you. It shall not be so with you. This is not for us. Christians are countercultural. We are different. We're not to be inwardly focused. We're to always have an eye towards the hurting, an eye towards the marginalized, an eye towards the oppressed, towards the less fortunate, the less privileged. In order to show the love of God, we have to have a radar that is, is more expansive than what's, what's just normal in our culture. And so when we celebrate Christmas the birthday of Jesus, we don't want to do it in the normal way, right? What we want to do it, we want to do it in a supernatural way, a kingdom way. That's what we're called to. And that's why next week we are having our annual Christmas offering for Jesus. It's going to be next week. We do this every year. We call it a Christmas offering for Jesus because, as I said, it's Jesus' birthday. So we want to give toward, you know, what does Jesus want the most? What does he love the most? He loves people. He loves people. He loves all those people around the world that he came to, to live for and to die and to save. He wants to have a relationship with these people. People around the world who don't even have the resources to build a roof over their head, to, to worship God together under, to pray under. And so we're building church buildings in third world villages that... And these buildings, uh, you know, not only function as a church on Sunday morning or sometimes uh, all, all during the week, they have service. Some of them have service every night. Uh, they're just so grateful and thankful for the opportunity to come worship God together. But they not only function as that, is they also function as schools. Very often they, in the village, they function as a school for the children during the week. And what is so cool is we've seen that they stand as a testimony there's this physical testimony for miles around of the love of God. People from other villages are walking by and they're like, whoa, what is that, right? And it's this testimony. They get to see, folks see with their own eyes, what God does for ordinary people like them through the generosity of ordinary people like you and me. And so I'm telling you this now because I want you to be praying this week of of what God might challenge you to give and really step out in faith to do this. I challenge you to make this one of the most important gifts you give this year for Christmas. The most important thing you buy for Christmas. And you've got different people on your list and you got to buy this person a sweater and this person a, you know, an earbud or whatever it is. God 
should take first place. Jesus, it's his birthday, right? And I'm telling you, God will take notice. He wants to bless you as much as he wants to bless that person in Africa and India and Central America and all those places. God wants to bless you too. So be prayerful about that this week. This is going to be next week. We'll, we'll be taking up this offering. Church, can we commit ourselves to becoming a new kind of normal, a kingdom normal? Amen. Let's pray together. Hallelujah. Father God, Lord God, may the wonderful counselor, Jesus Christ himself, may he lead us and guide us in all things this week. Lord, may we have the courage to actually follow his counsel, to act on his words, to be kingdom ambassadors, to be your hands and feet, to be, a, to be those loving words, Lord God, to a desperate world, Lord God. Help us to love our enemies and to seek to make disciples out of them. Thank you, God, for sending us Jesus to be our Savior and our Messiah. Thank you for showing us through Jesus, revealing yourself, showing us what you, Father God, are truly like, that you are the God of love, You are the self-sacrificial Savior of the world. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. 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 Um, If you have a prayer request, if there's anything going on in your life that we can pray with you about, something going on, whether it's something, maybe a financial need or uh, something with your health that you need prayer about, you need a miracle, uh, something you need a relationship to be restored, whatever it is, something with your job, Make sure you let us know because we want to be praying with you. We've got a whole prayer team that wants to be praying with you. You can send us your prayer request online. There's a lot of different ways here. You can send it through the website or through the church app. You can also write it on a piece of paper and put it in the offering boxes that are up here by the stage or in the foyers. If you want someone to pray with you in person, right there, be that point of contact and use their faith with you. Pastor Albert's going to be right up down here up by the stage. He would love to pray with you face-to-face today. And uh, if you are here today and you're giving your your tithes and your offerings, we thank you so much for your generosity. We thank you for for honoring God in that way and uh, helping us to fulfill our mission in this community and around the world. You can give your offering. There's a lot of different ways, again, online. You can do it through the website or the church app. You can give on the offering boxes down here. And uh, just thank you so much for for being a part of this. You're, You're part of this. We're all part of this ministry together. We're walking arm in arm to fulfill what God has called us to do. And it's an honor to do so. It's an honor to do so. Amen. Amen. And so, my friends, I want to I bless you as you leave today. I'm going to give you a special Advent edition benediction today. Okay, you ready? Here we go. May the Father grow your love for one another. May the Lord Jesus Christ teach you how to live in his ways. And may the Holy Spirit strengthen your hearts in holiness as you prepare yourself this Advent for the coming of the Lord Jesus. Grace and peace to you. Thanks, guys.